newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis on the issues in the news media of recent days, how we're covering it, and whether it's any good, as a matter of fact. We welcome you to join us. My name is Rex Smith. I'm a longtime newspaper editor. Happy to be with you here with my colleagues, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, another longtime newspaper editor now with the New York Press Association, and Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, professor, columnist, etc., etc., Etc. So we're going to talk about some of these issues. You know, everybody talks about media bias, and nobody is quite sure what to do about it. Our producer, David Gustina, suggested this week that we talk about a provocative article written by a not-for-profit called Trusting the News, which tries to work with local newsrooms to help build trust in communities. And Alan, this is something that you often talk about, and that is the natural biases from our lives that we bring to our work. And her point is, the point of Joy Mayer, who runs Trusting the News, is that too often we ignore the experiences that influence our journalism and we are in hiring, in staffing our newsrooms and putting together our news reports. We live basically in a bubble. So how do we avoid that kind of a lack of diversity in the viewpoints of the people in the newsrooms? Any great ideas there? You know what? Darned if I know. I have no idea how you avoid it. People do have prejudices, and we can't ignore them. Obviously, there's a big difference between the, the editorial judgments of the New York Times and those of the New York Post. And when somebody owns a newspaper, we have often talked about on this show how the editorial page is the publisher's page. And I don't think the publisher steps in very often. I know that's the case in your operation, Rex, in the Albany Times Union it was. But when the publisher wants it, the publisher gets it. And often the publisher does prevail, even if he doesn't open his mouth or she doesn't open her mouth, because obviously the people who are working for them know the prejudices of the person who is running things. So that's the way it is. Judy, in your hiring, did you ever worry about the so-called blue bubble that most journalists do tend to be, say, more liberal, more Democrats than Republicans traditionally? Oh, you worried about it all the time. And it's very difficult. And for decades, we've tried to deal with this. I think one of the reasons Joy Mayer, who has done a lot of work in the area of increasing trust in media, one of the reasons she's focusing on this is the fact that People won't trust the media if they feel that it's biased. And over the years, I've come to think that this is more than just personal bias. This is institutional bias. It's like newspapers will say, well, we don't do things like that. Uh, We don't cover that or deciding what we do cover. We focus on high school football. You know, there are certain things that as an institution that newspapers have always done. And it takes different voices to come into the newsroom to say, well, do we have to do that this year? Or do we have to do it the same way? Do we have to cover the weather story? There's some very obvious biases, but there's 
there's also a whole gamut of subtle biases that really need to be addressed. It's a very complex problem. Rosemary Romeo, do you think this would make any difference in the way the public receives news coverage? Do you think there's anything we can do about it? There is, but we haven't done it in the 50 years almost that I've been in journalism. Joy Mayer worked in my newsroom in Florida 20 years ago, and we talked about the exact same things that she's writing about in this. That reporters tend to be middle class, which is huge. That, that gives you a whole different set of values that have nothing to do with racial and ethnic differences on top of that. And what it takes is to attract different people into your newsrooms, which requires money that newsrooms do not have and glamour that the field definitely does not have anymore because jobs are insecure. And then once you get them, once you attract different diverse people into your newsroom, you have to give them the freedom to do differently. And I I have said this before, I'm sorry to be repeating myself, but these themes we talk about seem to be repeating. You bring in uh, young black and Latino reporters into an area that had only had white reporters, and they end up writing about boat ramps and town hall meetings where they're discussing taxes. The same thing that the white people wrote about because they're writing for editors that are white to change this as as we have been told by experts like Joy for 50 years now, is attract more people and give them freedom and power in the newsroom. The most important things happening now might be things like Kevin Merida, an experienced, excellent black journalist running the Los Angeles papers. That might make a difference. But, you know, overall, yeah, of course it would make a difference if we had more diverse people, but we're not getting them. Yeah, you know, it is the question of socioeconomic diversity is, I think, a huge one. Racial is very clear that there aren't enough journalists of color for us to really thoughtfully cover that. But we've talked before on this program about the so-called fault lines that the Maynard Institute, which is a diversity-focused think tank in journalism, talk about, that experiences are different by race, by sexual orientation, by gender, class, by generation, you know, old, young, in between, and by geography, by where people come from. I think the point that Rosemary makes, it's very difficult to lure great people across that band of diversity if you're not paying them well enough to retain them. And I don't know in this current environment where journalism is financially challenged, how you actually make that happen, number one. Number two, how do you interview for some of these issues? You don't actually ask somebody in a job interview, hey, are you gay? If you're looking, though, for diversity and sexual orientation, what do you do? Do you try to say, look, I need somebody who grew up without money in their home so that you get across to different class of people? So, Rosemary, are you saying, by the way, that there are different stories that you pursue if you hire those people, if you hire people from a different class or a different background? Hopefully that's what you want. You want to look at neighborhoods that traditionally under a white leadership are only covered when there's an accident or a horrible crime, you know. Good news stories should be coming out of places before you go in for a big tragedy. We do it naturally in white middle-class neighborhoods, not in poor neighborhoods and black or minority neighborhoods, usually. You know, there are ways to get at this, though. Bill Marimo, the great editor of Baltimore and Philadelphia, used to ask job applicants, what did your parents do? That's an absolutely fantastic and allowable legal way to get at your economic background. And as for gay and lesbian voices and transgendered voices, I think they've been really very successful in getting into newsrooms and getting their ideas and their writings out. It's much harder to do the socioeconomic kind of differences and racial differences are terrible because of money and lack of resources.
Rosemary, Hi. why is it that you still have students in your classrooms assuming the sad state of contemporary journalism, as you put it? Because they don't want to do math. So they go through four years of college and they, yeah. they're dealing in where they did well and in high school. Very few of them, Alan, are interested in going into media. And the ones that are, even less of them are interested in going into news. They want to write, like, reviews and sports. Interesting. <laughs> Depressing. But I suppose that weeds out the people who you don't want to hire anyway. If they don't have a commitment to public affairs and to what's going on in their communities, you don't want to have them as journalists anyway. Let me just run this out to you, Rex. One of the best students I ever had at UAlbany actually got hired at the Union. Did very, very well. He was on the front page all the time. And after a few years, he said, nope, I don't want to do this and left. And he's not in journalism anymore. He probably tried to get a job a, where he could govern his time by himself a little bit better than a newsroom where you just never know when you're going to have to work in two, or he's going to get paid better, right? Is that what drove him out, do you think? Right. Yeah. The job itself can be really rewarding, and that's one of the only things we have to offer is the fact that you can make a difference when you produce journalism. You know, you can change people's lives. You can change how things operate in your community. That's one of the big things we have. The people that stick with it for years, you know, this zest to do journalism, I think it has to be fostered. It's not something that people come about automatically. It's something we need to get at, you know, at the high school level. One of the problems we have is the fact that if you grow up poor, you're less likely to go to college and newspapers and all sorts of media companies are asking for a college degree. There was a time when you didn't need a college degree and to go into journalism and maybe we need to rethink that standard at this point. Well, let me put it this way. I think anything we can do to balance the newsroom is a great idea. And just because you went to college doesn't mean you're not smart. I know those of us who've thought, Rosemary and I have, and you've been in my classroom enough times, we know that there are some very bright people. But the problem is the very newspapers and media are all looking for the same thing. They want to add balance. Now, if you're a black candidate and you have a chance to work at the New York Times or another great institution, are you more likely to come to a small newspaper somewhere or you're more likely to go A, where the money is and B, where the prestige is? Absolutely. You lose great people all the time to bigger, better newsrooms. You have to view uh, when you're the editor of a community newspaper or uh, leading an organization that is not in one of the centers of commerce, you have to view your role as being something like a teaching hospital. You're teaching people and setting them out to do good. And that's part of what you do. And you're constantly then hiring great young talent. And you can sometimes keep people who are dedicated to a community who want to stay someplace. I think all of us like to think that we chose to live where we do, even though we're not in Hollywood or somewhere that we chose these places. But I think there is a point to Alan's fact here that folks do take off and go to where they think the opportunities are. I think I'm not just budding journalists should have a college degree. And if we made education accessible to more people overall, we would be in a, a much better community to start with. And what I would want to see instead is not people without a degree, but people with a degree in something other than just journalism or English. And explain why that is. Why do you say that? Again, for that same depth of experience and expertise, if you have someone who has police training, for example, or environmental sciences training or community planning, city planning, those are all areas that journalists write about and they acquire expertise on the fly. Why not hire somebody who has it by training? But what do you do about political diversity? There are an awful lot of newsrooms where you probably don't find anybody who voted for Donald Trump. 
I just think that's a fact. Does that affect our coverage? And is that something that we should be fighting against? Well, if you're asking me, I I think that one of the things that newspapers are suffering from are the layering on of conservatives to try to get around that. So you have the very liberal Washington Post that has Mark Thiessen writing, and it's just horrible, you know, to those of us who disagree with them. And it does feel kind of artificial. It's like conservative frosting on a liberal cake. Are there people who want to go into journalism and change the world and challenge authority who are also conservative? Is it artificial to be looking for different political views just for the sake of having different political views in your paper? We're talking about news coverage, though, not about opinion coverage. That's the difficult part. You can hire somebody to be a columnist and offer any sort of views they want to, but to get news reporters with a conservative point of view that may then change the kinds of stories they write For example, our coverage tends to assume, I think, that we value the rights of all people regardless of sexual orientation. There are people on the right who will say, no, we still believe that homosexuality is a sin and news coverage should reflect the tragedy of gay rights in our society. Obviously, I don't embrace that point of view, but if I'm hiring somebody, should I be trying to find people who reflect that point of view or people who are great opponents of Black Lives Matter? Should you be looking for that kind of right-wing bias in hiring reporters? Is that where this goes when you're trying to get diversity? Boy, I sure hope not, because that's going to affect the coverage. You know, there's nothing like covering local news to make you understand political ideology, because at the local level, if someone's a Democrat or a Republican, often those values don't translate to, you know, how much money they borrowed to buy a truck. But it's a good way to learn about basic political viewpoints, you know, what unions are, are what, what a public union is good for, good for what it, you know, the, the divide over that or the, the debate over, again, how much money to borrow or how much surplus to retain. Those are things that local reporters deal with a lot, but they do have to come around to cover Mm -hmm. contentious social issues. And man, I want them going in and I don't want them to be carrying any kind of bias. I want them just to cover it. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. That is Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, whom you just heard, Rosemary Armeo, and I'm Rex Smith. And if you want to share your views, media at WAMC.org is our email address, and we're very happy to have you with us. You know, one of these topics that we often get into is the change in television news. We've been mostly talking about local news outlets, but when you look at national network news, there is a lot more, let's say, on-air editorializing, and there is criticism of that that the networks, CNN and MSNBC, of course, there's a lot more opinion content that airs. Dr. Chartok, what do you think about that? Is this a, an issue that uh, needs to be aired a little bit more? Uh, is, it, is it something we ought to be concerned about? Well, I do think it's all about money. And I think CNN, which was more balanced in the old days, is now clearly where, in my opinion, they ought to be. And the news is basically being covered from a more progressive, liberal, or even left way of doing things. They think that that's the way to attract eyeballs, and they get it. To me, I'm attracted to CNN because I think they do a very good job and I agree with what they have to say. Less so MSNBC, which is a little bit more over the top, although I do agree with a great deal of what they say. I virtually never watch Fox except when I mistakenly turn on the wrong channel. 
And I do think that that's where we are. It all has to do with attracting customers. Now, Fox does very well. Fox is one of the top networks in the country, and they get the kinds of conservative viewers that they want. And Rex, when I have a chance, I'd love to be able to talk about a slightly different story, and that is I read in a newspaper, an editorial not that long ago, which called for the Congress inserting money for newspapers into the new bills that are coming up to support the American people and saying, okay, let's give some money, some tax-free money to newspapers and to news media and an editorial supporting that. Do you think that's kosher? You mean sort of like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting? No, not like that at all. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting is here right now. They give money, and there are those people who think they shouldn't. They give money and have all along to support public radio. But now we have newspapers calling for the support. And I know you've always been on the side that the government could do more. But here is a plea for government to do that and to insert into the various tax bills a way to help newspapers. I'm just wondering what everybody thinks about that. Alan, what I think you're talking about is this federal proposal for the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. And what it is is not direct aid to newspapers, but what it would do is offer people tax credits. or um, You could deduct the cost of your newspaper subscription on your federal income taxes. It also provides some tax credit for the money they spend advertising in their local newspaper or radio station or television station. So it's not direct tax dollars, although it's... It's indirect tax dollars, but that is what the proposal is that's now before the Senate and the House. A different matter from giving grants to newspapers, Alan. It's not quite no, uh, I, the I way did, it sounds. I, I, did, I did not say grants to newspapers, Rex. But the fact yeah. of the matter yeah. is it's helpful. It helps the bottom line of not only newspapers, but perhaps broadcasting stations also. And I'm just wondering whether or not these media outlets who are going to be the beneficiaries but who espouse it at the same time are walking a dangerous line. Ah, I see what you're saying. Is it inappropriate for an editorial page to be speaking on these topics when the the parent company could be uh, getting some tax benefit from this, uh, some financial benefit? That's always difficult. You know, uh, there was a time when uh, even, uh, as I recall years ago, when the Times Union turned down retraining dollars that were available from the state labor department uh, because of the perception that taking any money of any sort from the government directly conflicted with the editorial role uh, of the newspaper. But, of course, uh, news organizations, like other businesses, uh, get benefits from government all the time. You get a tax abatement if you build your press somewhere, although nobody's building presses anymore. Uh, you uh, you know, people, um, it's, it's sort of impossible to avoid connections between government and the media. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think you could look at it as saying, well, these are major institutions. There's all sorts of research about how communities fail more when they don't have local journalism outlets. Um, the loss of local newsrooms or losses of, of local jobs, which are significant in outlying places. And now we have these uh, uh, news islands that we've talked about, news deserts, sorry, uh, where th- there aren't uh, any news organizations. And there's just no substitute for the loss of these local newsrooms. I think people are struggling to try to come up with a way that you can sustain local journalism 
uh, at a time when local businesses, Main Street businesses, are going out of business, and those are the entities that have always supported those local enterprises. It's a that's a very tough line. What would you do? In the spirit of the kind of uh, right wing leaning journalists that we've been sort of advocating hiring here, I would say um, they don't deserve support. They don't have public um, interest or desire for news anymore. So maybe why are they worth preserving? Why put tax dollars into them and not say railroads, which are the same sort of things? What what is what about newspapers uh, or local news is so special that they deserve this? Isn't this just a bunch of left-leaning journalists advocating for a continuation of their dead industry? And then, of course, there is the question as to whether newspapers and others in media should ever get any money from the government because, as we all know, what they give, they can take it away. And that is a dangerous place to be. Exactly. Uh, This we know, of course, to be true because of uh, the uh, public advertising that is required. Uh, Local governments have to advertise when they take action, let contracts and so on. And uh, local governments often will put the threat of withdrawing all that advertising up as a factor if news coverage doesn't reflect favorably in their view on the town board or on some uh, county agency. Uh, And and we've all uh, had that threat and run afoul of local governments uh, who uh, then say, well, we're going to take away that advertising. It's an interesting dilemma. But you, you just look at the small newspapers that have vanished. You know, I think, for example, of the Glens Falls Post-Star, which is a a wonderful uh, community newspaper, has been traditionally over the years. Um, Ken Tingley, who was the editor of that paper and retired last year, um, makes note of the fact that his newsroom, uh, which once had about three dozen people in it, was down to eight people when he retired. And uh, when he left as editor, he was not replaced. Uh, So you think about the losses of a voice as as strong as that newspaper was um, and the loss of that business uh, in in a community. Uh, the countless newspapers that have vanished in small communities to be replaced by maybe one reporter from a far distant place that where once there were a half dozen, it does have an impact on a community when you don't have somebody covering the town board and the and the uh, school board and so on. It's a it's a great loss. So isn't there a public interest in helping to support that with tax policy or with some other entities? I think that some of this really deserves a second look and, and there ought to be some attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, we have always prided ourselves as an industry on our independence, you know, and we were able to sort of do that for a long time because the advertisers needed us and our subscriber base provided money. So we had the money we needed to be able to say, yeah, we're independent. We don't we don't need that government payout. But it's true. Postal rates for newspapers were low for 100 years because they were essentially subsidizing the distribution of newspapers by mail because in large part, it was perceived as a public good to get the information about what was happening to the public. But it's always been out there to some degree. It's just now the the, the landscape has changed so dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years that you know we're starting to think, well, maybe it is time for us to help newspapers and other media companies by alleviating some of the financial strain. And yet I can't forget what Rex was referring to before. Actually, he was referring to his own newspaper which had done a good job of covering the mayorality in the mayor's job in Albany. And somebody got so ticked off, they took all the advertising out of the 
uh, TU, the Times Union, and put it into the tablet, which is a Catholic newspaper in the Jewish world of all places, and took it out. Now it's come back, I believe, Rex. But it's a pretty good example of how government, once it gives you something, can take it away. Absolutely right. And the publisher of the Times Union at the time, this is back in the uh, 60s, took advantage of a favorable tax opportunity from the town of Colony and moved the newspaper out of downtown Albany. (laughs) So the organization giveth and the organization taketh away, as you say, Alan. (laughs) There are two hands that can play that game, and it can be pretty powerful. But the notion that businesses don't need local media anymore because you have digital advertising that is generally brokered by these giant concerns – Google, Facebook, and the like now get two-thirds of all the advertising revenue in the United States. A lot of that revenue used to go to your local newspapers, and so that's why you don't have as many reporters. And Google now has this huge imprint, and you may ask, shouldn't there then be a tax treatment that would take some of that money and redistribute it. Redistribution of wealth is, after all, what government's about these days. And maybe it ought to be done for the benefit of the information ecosystem in local communities. Well, all I know very quickly is that we do tend to follow the money now. I don't want to appear braggadocio, but our underwriting program, some people would call it advertising, but it's not, at WAMC, is doing extraordinarily well. And we know that a lot of people are listening to public radio who did not listen before. So to some degree, the underwriting purchases follow what people are listening to, don't they? Mm -hmm. To some degree, that is surely true. And that's a great thing. Let's hear it for support for public radio, where you have heard this program, The Media Project. And we are grateful to you for listening to us. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina. And to you folks for listening this week on The Media Project. It must have startled poor old Sadie's aunt. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. All newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ting-a-ling, ting-a-ling, ling-a-ling-a-ling. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance, but finally... The The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries for publishers must go. To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>